Morning, Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose. We're still waking up. It's um, if you follow the Jewish calendar, which I'm sure you all do. Uh, this weekend was Passover weekend, <clears throat> and if we consider the Western Judeo-Christian calendar, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, Palm Sunday is the day that we remember. Um, the beginning of what's called Holy Week or Passion Week. We remember when Jesus came by way of Jericho and seeing Zacchaeus and entering into Jerusalem to come to be crucified. And as he did so, and as he entered into Jerusalem, there was a significant following because the crowds were coming for the Passover festival. And some were following Jesus, but many were coming up that hill to the holy city, uh, Mount Zion, the city of peace, in order to celebrate the Passover feast. And as they did so, the children and the people celebrated and those cheered with the hope and belief that Jesus would be the Messiah who would end the rule, the rule of the Romans and the oppressors and the Gentile oppressors and bring back and usher in the kingdom of David and the kingdom from above. And of course, Jesus disappointed them because he had a much greater kingdom and a much greater rule and messiahship that was needed for the atonement of our sins and for a family and a people of God who would be for eternity. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to ask you to go to verse 26. And I would like you, if you could, to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And as we come uh, to verse 26, we're coming, these are G- this is Jesus speaking, but we're coming to the end of a parable that he's giving. The parable of the Minas, of a king who leaves an investment behind knowing he will return, and his servants, some deal with that investment and that treasure well, others do not. And Jesus reminds them of the king speaking at the very end of this parable, and it is a segue into his entrance into Jerusalem. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. This is the king speaking to his servants. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works 
that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sat, those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. You may have a seat. You know, as we heard that imprecatory psalm this morning, it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear the word of the Lord where David talks about calling on the Lord to take a spear and a javelin on his enemies. What type of a person does that? But as we get ready for Holy Week and we prepare for Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we need to be mindful that the fulfillment of the psalms and what the psalms point towards is the cross. And we can't understand completely until we see the rest of the story. And it's worth noting and being mindful that the Lord, that God the Father himself took up the spear and javelin to pierce the side of his son. And Jesus became the enemy of God so that we might become his friend and his child. So let's come to him in prayer as his children. Lord Jesus, what a Savior and what a King. What a High Priest and what a Prophet. And what a gracious, gracious, gracious Lord that you would set your eyes on Jerusalem and set your eyes on the rejection, the humiliation, and the shame and the curse that we deserved. Becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God becoming the enemy of God so that we might become your friends, your children, and part of your family. And so as we remember this, Lord Jesus, this day, we confess we can't begin to completely understand or appreciate, but we do want to come with gratitude and thank you for making known to us the heart and plans and love the truth and the grace of the Father. And we confess, Lord Jesus, we are a people and a family who have been given much. We have been given the greatest treasure of all. God the Father gave us you, His Son, and His only begotten Son. You are our greatest treasure, worth far more than anything the kingdoms of this world has to offer. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are present here with us this morning as our King and as our Lord, the risen and resurrected Lord. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that has been given and has been offered. 
We thank you for the perfection of what was accomplished on the cross. And we come to you, Lord Jesus, this day and say, we so, so desperately need you and all that you are. Lord Jesus, we want to lift to you this day, Lord, the many members of this congregation who have family members who are either sick or struggling or enduring hardship and difficulty or adversity, Lord. We want to lift up to you members of our congregation at this time who themselves are challenged with the struggles, Lord, of this world. And we just pray, Lord Jesus, in thanksgiving, that you know their names, you know their trials, you know their tribulations. Lord Jesus, you are interceding on their behalf as we speak. You are a man of sorrow, acquainted with griefs. You understand the pain and sorrow and the challenges that these members and their family members are going through at this time. But not just knowing and appreciating, Lord Jesus, you are the remedy. And so we lift these saints to you at this time. And Lord Jesus, we consider and remember too our brothers and sisters throughout the United States, but also throughout the world at this time. We think of saints and those who are your servants who at this time are languishing in prison for the sake of the gospel. We think of those who are suffering and being persecuted or their family members are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. We think of our brothers and sisters in China. We think of our brothers and sisters right now in Myanmar. We think of those throughout Southeast Asia. And we also think of those throughout Africa and the Middle East. And we think of those also in Eastern Europe. All of these different places, Lord, including Russia, where there are faithful servants who, for your name's sake, Lord Jesus, they are suffering. And Lord Jesus, it's hard at times when we see those we love suffer or lose loved ones. And we struggle with that to understand until we open the pages of the Scripture and see, Lord Jesus, what you were willing to suffer for our sake and how their suffering is not the end of the story, even as in your case, suffering was not the end of the story. But in your sovereign hands, Lord Jesus, suffering is part of a greater story in which new life is given, victory over death and sin is assured. And the resurrection and your presence in our midst is our hope. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that this would be the hope of our church, but also those throughout the world who at this time are struggling and suffering. Lord Jesus, we also want to come to you and ask for your help this morning. The condemnation that you stated upon Jerusalem was that they were not aware of the day of their visitation that in the midst of them was the greatest gift of life, and yet they rejected it and chose in the end after cheering ultimately to crucify you. And so we're mindful of this, Lord, in our way, living in America, that there are many ways, Lord Jesus, that we've been excited about you for a minute or a moment, but instead have become distracted with the things of the world and have embraced those things. And in our own way, Lord Jesus, we are guilty of having rejected you and your word and the precious treasure that you are and the visitation that you have given through the cross that you are in our midst and we have a treasure to share and enjoy to the fullest but also to proclaim. 
So, Lord Jesus, forgive us for these things. And we just ask this morning and this coming week, would you give us the help that we need because we are unable to save ourselves or others and we are unable to forgive ourselves of our sins. Lord Jesus, would you give us the help we need? Would you stir our hearts with a faith that comes from your word? Would you open our eyes and enable us, Lord Jesus, to behold the glory of the cross, the goodness and grace and truth of your word and your life? Would we embrace it this week to the fullest and be mindful, Lord Jesus, that our only life is in you? And would we, Lord Jesus, with a passion and joy, share it with a world that so desperately needs it? Lord Jesus, would you help us to this end? And for the work that you will do in our hearts and in our midst, thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning it's my pleasure to introduce our our guest uh, preacher from the pulpit this morning, uh, James Street. Um, James and I sort of go back a long way. I, I got a chance to watch him grow up at Grace, so he didn't know I was watching. But by virtue of um, the kindness of his parents to me, um, Dr. Street and Janie, I got to follow that. Our times overlapped in seminary very, very briefly. We did a, a worship class, which he didn't know I was in, but with Dr. Snyder uh, together. And... Um, but over the past uh, several years, James presently right now is uh, working as the uh, overseer for admissions and graduate studies at the Masters University. You know, he'll share a little bit about that for those of you who are interested in the biblical counseling program. He's also the director of uh, youth and college ministry at Placerita Baptist, which is right next to the Masters University. Uh, but very frequently when I get together with Dr. Street, I always ask how his family uh, are doing, and I always keep track of what each of the um, kids, I guess we'll say. That's, but anyways, I, I knew you as a younger person, but I would keep track of where everybody's going and always talk to Dr. Street. And James in particular... Um, he did a THM on uh, Edom and eschatology and Old Testament studies. And as you know, Old Testament studies is very near and dear to my heart as well. And so I've always sort of kept track of what James was doing in ministry. And last fall when I was talking with uh, Dr. Street, there were a number of subjects that James was teaching and preaching on um, that caught my interest. And I just thought that would be a real benefit uh, and encouragement to our church to hear from some of these areas that uh, James has been ministering ministering in. And uh, so it was my intent to ask Dr. Street if James would be willing to come and do a teaching. Uh, little did I know and very unexpectedly that um, the Lord would provide James with a special friendship with one of the sisters in our church. But that just happened sort of independent. But the Lord works in mysterious ways. But um, James has been uh, a dear brother and an encouragement to me. And uh, I believe the word that he's going to bring this morning about the law and the life of the Christian is something that we need to hear. So please welcome to the pulpit, uh, Pastor James. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you guys this morning. Um, as uh, Mark said, I am uh, the 
Graduate Studies Admissions Coordinator for the MABC at the Masters University. Uh, if you are interested in our program, we have some flyers at the back table there. You can pick one of these up. It gives you just some quick information about our program. Uh, we do like a typically like a two-year type of a program. If you want to go like full-time, you can take it longer if you want. You can also do it from a distance, which is probably very attractive for those of you guys who live up here in this area and stuff like that. But uh, it's a great program that will really dig you deep into biblical counseling. And I know this church is really firm and strong on biblical counseling, but uh, each member, really each member of the church, I, I believe, needs to have a good understanding of biblical counseling. Uh, because everyone in the church should be discipling. Everyone should be a part of discipleship. Everyone should be invested in each other's lives. And the best way to know how to do that is to learn biblical counseling. Because it, you're basically learning the tools that you will need to be able to invest in people's lives. And, and so if you're interested in a program like this, uh, this is going to be great. I think one of our greatest features about our program is hermeneutics, uh, which is the study of how to study scripture. And uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any biblical counseling program out there that is as good in teaching you hermeneutics than our program is. So if you're interested in this, uh, pick up a flyer. You can talk with me after the service. Uh, I'd be uh, glad to talk with you about this. So uh, this is a great opportunity for you if you're open to that. So... Well, it is a joy to be with you guys this morning. Uh, like I said, I'm excited to be here. Uh, this is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is near and dear to my heart um, for a variety of reasons, but primarily, obviously, because it's the lead-up to Easter uh, or to Resurrection Sunday. And, you know, I've been thinking this morning about uh, Psalm 118, and it talks about Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what's quoted by many of the people as they are shouting, uh, and, and Jesus is walking through uh, Jerusalem on a donkey, right? They, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's really interesting that in Psalm 118, there's also that familiar verse, uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And when you think about it in that context, what is this day? This day is not today. This day is which day? The day of salvation. The day that Christ died on the cross and then the day that he rose from the dead. That's what that's talking about. And so as we lead up to Easter, we can be excited about today, this Sunday, because this Sunday is built upon the back of that Sunday 2,000 years ago. We get to worship the Lord today. We get to sit in these pews because of the resurrection of Christ, right? And that's our hope. That's our joy. And that's what brings us so much peace in a world that is so full of division and controversy and hopelessness. So I just want to encourage you guys a little bit, as you guys are, I'm sure, are struggling through a lot and going through a lot these days. Um, we have so much hope, don't we? We have so much hope. And so one of the things that we have hope in is what I'm going to be talking about this morning, although it may not seem like it, but that's what we're going to cover today. Now, how many of you guys have ever had this experience? It's December 31st, and you are really itching to start a yearly Bible reading plan. And so January 1st, you wake up early in the morning, you grab your Bible, you open it up to Genesis 1, and you start reading your yearly Bible reading plan. And things are going great. You have your cup of coffee, you've got, you know, a notepad and pen, and everything is going so well. 
In fact, for the first month, it's going great. It's phenomenal. And then you hit Exodus 20. And you read commandment after commandment. And you read Levitical law after Levitical law. And you read ceremony procedure after ceremonial procedure. You even start reading things like uh, instructions for the tabernacle. And it's really, really boring, right? And it kind of reads like an instruction manual from Ikea or something like that. And it's just something that is, it's just hard. And all of a sudden, that wonderful Instagram-worthy devotions that you have, all of a sudden becomes a chore, right? Becomes a chore. And you find yourself skipping more and more days of your reading And you find yourself wondering, what is even the point of this? And you don't even make it through Deuteronomy. You kind of just ditch the whole plan altogether. That part of scripture that you have just come face to face with is the law. And it's where every Bible reading plan goes to die. That's what it does. The law is one of the hardest parts of scripture for us. Because it just really doesn't seem all that relatable, does it? Since the commands and instructions aren't always readily applicable, we often don't know what to do with them. So we lose interest, and we get bored, and we wonder what is the point. And to be fair, I think our concern is actually valid. I mean, after all, doesn't the Apostle Paul say in Romans 6.14, for you are no longer under law, but under grace? And doesn't he tell us in Galatians 5.18 that if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under law? Yeah, the law is great for Israel back then, but if it no longer has jurisdiction over us, why bother? So I get it. I understand the tendency to be disinterested. And yet deep down, we know better, don't we? We know better. Somewhere in the deepest recesses of our hearts and our minds is second, or sorry, yeah, second Timothy 3.16's muffled cry, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. And is profitable. Not some scripture, not most scripture, all scripture is profitable. And that includes the law. Not some of the law. Not most of the law, but all of the law is profitable. It's just as much a part of scripture as an epistle or even a gospel. And as such, it is just as profitable and just as relevant for your walk with Christ. So why are we struggling then? Why do we have such a hard time picking up our Bibles and reading the Old Testament law? The reason is actually quite simple. It's because we think about the law all the wrong way. We've got the wrong view of it. To many of us, the law is just a bunch of rules. If we're honest with ourselves, we see the law as just a bunch of commandments and instructions that are thrown together haphazardly or at random. And so, of course, we're going to struggle. Of course, we're going to struggle reading through the law. Of course it's going to be hard. If it's just a bunch of rules, then yeah, it's not going to be easy. And guess what? You're not going to get that much out of it. But when you think about the law the right way, 
then it actually becomes something special. And it will be to you everything that it was made to be. You will finally be able to say along with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, how many of us can actually say that right now? Oh, how I love leading, or reading all of the, the, uh, the laws about the sacrificial system. Oh, how I love reading about the instructions for the tabernacle. I wish I could meditate, it, meditate on it all day long. I don't think many of us would say that, right? And so, to appreciate the law for all it's worth, we need to recover its true purpose. And that's what I want to help you guys do this morning. What is the real purpose behind God's law? And to begin to see this, we need to dive into the law itself. So, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a uh, lesson in Hebrew vocabulary, okay? Hebrew vocabulary. So, uh, this is a Passover, right? That we've just uh, been uh, celebrating for the Jewish calendar. Well, we're going to do a little bit of a Hebrew vocabulary lesson for a moment. So, bear with me. In English, law refers to a system of rules or commands. That's how we are used to thinking about it. But in ancient Hebrew which is the language most of the Old Testament was written in, law means something else entirely. Now, it includes laws, it includes commands, but it actually means something else. The Hebrew word for law is Torah. Torah. Now, some of you guys may have heard of that before, um, but it doesn't mean commands like we might think. It actually means something else. It means, get this, to point. It means to point. It means to show. Uh, Much like one of those green billboards, you know, on the side of the road as you're heading across the 280 or something like that, and it points you to your exit, you know, next exit is, you know, so-and-so or such-and-such or whatever. Well, the law is meant to point you to something. It is a sign. It's meant to lead you somewhere. That's its function in the nutshell. And we see this in Exodus 15. God had just miraculously rescued uh, Israel from Egypt and flexed his muscles by parting the Red Sea. And what's the very next thing that Israel does? It says in verse 24, if you look in your Bibles, and the people grumbled against Moses. They arrived at a place in the wilderness where the water was bitter, it was undrinkable, and they grumbled. They grumbled before a God who had just finished wiping the floor with Egypt in the most supernatural and cosmic ways imaginable. And they couldn't for one second trust God that he had their best interests in mind and that he was going to provide for them. But God being the gracious God that he is, he shows them compassion and mercy. And verse 25 says something very interesting. It says, notice this, verse 25, And he, that is Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now what you see here is that God showed him a log. 
But what you don't see is that the word showed is actually the word Torah. It's the word Torah. It's the word law. And of course, you know, when you think, when you start putting this into the right words then, you could almost say God lawed him a log. But of course, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to us, right? But that's because we have it backwards in our minds. We think law is one thing, you know, commands, when in reality, it's something different to point. It's to point. And it's no coincidence that God uses this word Torah here just a few chapters before, get this, Exodus 20, which is where we find the Ten Commandments. What is God doing here in Exodus 15? He's already preparing Israel to understand what is the real purpose of the law. What is the real purpose? And that's what he's going to be telling them in the next several chapters, chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, by way of demonstration, here's how you need to start thinking about the law even before we get to it. This is what it's about. It's about, it is pointing you to something. And that, brothers and sisters, is how you and I need to start thinking about the law. We need to stop thinking about the law as just a bunch of commands or just a bunch of rituals, or just a bunch of instructions. It is those things, but it's so much more. Its purpose goes way beyond that. At its core, the law is meant to show you something. It's meant to point you to something. It's meant to lead you somewhere. It points out something to both yourself and to others as you struggle to live it out, and as you read it for yourself in the scriptures. And that's its job. It's a pointer. And if we miss this, what we're going to do is we will miss all of the theology the law was meant to convey. Because everything in the law, everything in the law is built on this premise that the law is a pointer. That's its job. And so the question, brothers and sisters, that we need to ask ourselves for the rest of our time together is this. What does the law point to? What is it even pointing to? We're not used to thinking about it this way, so we need to figure out what does the law point to? What does it show us? And so I want to answer that for you with our time remaining. And I want to bring your attention to three principles. Three principles that the law points to, okay? And here's the first one. It should be up on the screen here. Number one, the first principle is the person of God. The person of God. I'm talking about God's character, his attributes. Every aspect of the law is filled with rich theology about who God is. From the moral commands that Israel was to obey, uh, down to the, the details of the tabernacle's layout, everything in the law communicates something about our amazing God. The law was meant... It was not meant to be just a bunch of rules to follow. It it was intended to broadcast this message to the world. This is our God. This is who He is. This is what He cares about. But how does the law do that? How does it exactly do that? How do certain commandments or instructions actually reflect God's character? Well, I think a good place that we can start to see how all this works is the Ten Commandments themselves. That's a good starting place for us. So flip over to Exodus 20. 
Exodus chapter 20. And we'll just quickly walk through the Ten Commandments here and see how they all bring out different aspects about God's character. Exodus 20, verse 3, we see our first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And while that clearly is a command telling Israel not to allow anything in their lives to rival the place of God himself, it also tells us something about God himself. What does it tell us? It tells us this. Number one, God is supreme. God is supreme. He's preeminent. You should not put anything on the same level as him. He stands alone at the top. And faced, when you're faced with that theological truth in mind, the question you should be asking yourself is this. What competes for my attention? What competes for my affection? What competes for my worship on a day-by-day basis? What takes up time and energy and resources and thought? That's what you worship. That's what you consider to be supreme in your life. You see, these commands here, they aren't just rules. They aren't rules, not just rules. They're theology. They're meant to point you to who God is. And we've learned here, the first principle that's kind of pointed to here is that God is supreme, right? God is supreme. Verses 4 through 6 contain the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any idols. And, again, and once again, while this is a commandment, it also tells us something about God. You can think of kind of this second commandment as the inverse of the first commandment in the sense that if you, should tr- if you should not treat anything else on the level of God, you should also not treat God on the level of anything else. In other words, while the first commandment tells us that God is preeminent, perhaps the second commandment tells us that God is incomparable. He is incomparable. In other words, what should you be doing with this commandment? How should you be thinking about it? Stop treating God like he's just like everything else. Stop treating God like he's just like everything else. Don't humanize him. I think we're guilty of this in a lot of ways. But one way is perhaps how we pray. How we pray. Sometimes I think that we treat God a little bit too casually in prayer. Like he's just another person. Don't we? And while that, there's some place for that in one sense, we have to understand, this is our God. This is, he's unlike anyone else. Should we approach the throne of grace with confidence? Yes, absolutely. But should we approach the throne of grace with carelessness? No, absolutely not. God is incomparable. Verse 7 We see our third commandment, do not take uh, God's name in vain. And it teaches us this about God. God is centralizing. God is centralizing. Now, what do I mean by that? That God needs to be the center of everything in your life. Everything is revolving around him. Since God is so preeminent and so incomparable, he is far too important for you to ignore The very existence of God demands that your life looks different at every time and in every way and in every area. Your life must be centralized around him. And so unlike what some may think, this commandment is not just forbidding you from 
swearing or cursing using God's name, although that's probably a valid application. But the idea is much broader here. This is ordering you not to recklessly invoke God's name at all for anything that you say or do. In other words, you can think about it this way. It's the principle of Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the what? In the name of the Lord Jesus. Where do you think Paul got that from? He got that from the third commandment. That's where he got it from. Everything you say or do should be done as if Jesus is signing off on it. You need to live life in such a way that it's as if God is backing whatever you do. It's as if he signed on the dotted line endorsing what you're about to say, what you're about to do, what you're about to think. And that's a sobering thought, right? What a tremendous responsibility. But that's the third commandment. God is centralizing. God is centralizing. Verses 8 through 11 bring us to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath. We're familiar with this because this is the one commandment that we actually don't observe, right? It's like, yeah, we don't really do that. I mean, we're here on Sunday, not on Saturday, so that's what we're doing. But even though this is not a a particular law that we adhere to today, that doesn't mean it doesn't teach us something about God. Don't just throw that law out and think it's worthless or useless. This too is 2 Timothy 3.16 profitable. It is profitable. This too is theology. This too is about God's character. So what does it teach us? It teaches us this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God, is, God literally controls everything in time and space. The Sabbath day that Israel was supposed to observe each week is grounded in the weekly pattern of creation. You probably are aware of that. God made the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh, right? That's the Sabbath. So at bare minimum, this shows us that God controls all of time. All of time. Not just abstractly, time in general, but personally, your time. Because just as God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh, he he asks that you work for six days and then rest on the seventh. What is God saying? I control your time. I control your time. And if God controls your time, then he controls everything you do with your time. See that? See how that works? That's how we get the principle that God is in control of everything or that God is sovereign. Not just sovereign over events and circumstances. Specifically, the fourth commandment is after he's sovereign over your life. Sovereign over your life. God is sovereign. Verse 12, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother and all the parents in the room say a hearty amen. (laughs) Right? Now, we've just seen that God's character, through, uh, God's character here through how we should relate to God himself, but now for the last six commandments, we're going to see God's character through how we should relate to others. In other words, the, law, the Ten Commandments are kind of broken up into the first four being about love God, and the last six are broken up into being about love others. We know that, right? We see that division there. And so when Jesus says in the New Testament that, 
the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't just pull that out of thin air. Where's he getting that from? Ten Commandments. He's getting it from the Ten Commandments. He's getting it from the, the way the law is structured and put together to communicate that the primary principle of your life should be to love God and then behind that or through that or as an extension to that to love your neighbor as yourself. He understood that. And so as we see here, we start again with, the, uh, uh, with this command here to, to uh, honor your father and mother. And the question is why? Why begin here? Why, why start with honoring father and mother? Well, <clears throat> what God is doing is he walked through the first four commandments, you know, with, uh, you know, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make an idol and all that kind of stuff. He walks through, right? Well, he's starting over with the same principle just on a human level. So, we see here with the fifth commandment that it is an extension of the first two commandments, the fifth commandment is an extension of the first two commandments. It's the kind of response that we should have towards human authority as we do towards God's authority. That's the idea here. And this is what it tells us about God. That God cares about authority. God cares about authority. God cares about authority so much that he has created authority in this world for you to obey so that you will magnify his ultimate authority. God cares about human authority. Did you know that? He cares about human authority. I think by the way we live our lives sometimes, we don't believe that, do we? We live in America. No one cares about authority. Like, we're built upon that. Our whole, our whole nation was founded on subverting authority. <laughs> That's the way it is. We have that mindset. Freedom, liberty. We don't like authority. But guess what? God loves human authority. God loves human authority. And that's radical when you think about it. It's not just parents. It's bosses. It's church leaders. It's presidents. God cares about human authority. Notice the logic of 1 Peter 2.13. Submit to every human institution... Every human institution. But then there's this phrase that comes after that. Why should we do that? Because of the Lord. Because of the Lord. Who's the ultimate master? The Lord. Why do we submit to every human institution? Because of his authority. You show you care about God's authority best when you obey the human authority God has placed over your life. So God cares about authority. Verse 13 tells the sixth commandment, do not murder. And I think this is simple enough for under, to understand on the surface, but if we're going to kind of see how this commandment works, maybe we should kind of flip it around and make it more of a positive assertion. The idea here is this. God cares about life. God cares about life. Listen, murder is wrong because God cherishes human life. Abortion is wrong because God cares about every human life. Anger is wrong because God cares about the quality of every human life. And so we should too. God cares about life. Verse 14, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. 
While this is definitely a very specific kind of sin, like do not murder, it reveals to us another positive quality about God, and that's this. God cares about purity. God cares about purity. And again, while this certainly includes all sexual purity, it goes far beyond that as well. God hates anything that's impure. God made the world that is in in an organized fashion. It is ordered, it is structured, with everything serving a distinct purpose. And when you start mixing God's design, you begin to corrupt God's creation. So that's why sexual sin is evil. But that's also why tampering with God's word is evil. Deuteronomy 4.2 There's a cross-reference there. That's also why lying is evil. Because it's mixing truth with error. It all muddies what God has initially made pure. God cares about purity. That's why perhaps as we kind of think about some of the weird laws in the Old Testament when it talks about like don't mix certain kinds of cloth together and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that before in the law. It's like what do you do with a commandment like that? How is that devotional? That's, that's built upon the back of the seventh commandment. Because it's mixing two things that were not meant to go together. It's supposed to demonstrate to the world, God loves purity. God loves purity. Verse 15, here's the eighth commandment, do not steal. I think this one's pretty straightforward, but the the, the theology here is basically, God cares about ownership. God cares about ownership. If God controls everything, then he has the right to give people some things and other people other things. And so it's not our place to to take what is not ours because God owns everything and he decides who gets what, right? So God cares about ownership. Verse 16, the, the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. And this is typically viewed here as the lying commandment, right? Do not bear false witness is do not lie. And once again, I think that's not a bad application. That's good. But there's so, that's just far too narrow. This, this is actually a broader idea the idea here of do not bear false witness, it's a, it's a legal statement. If you give false testimony in court against someone, what exactly are you doing? You're not just lying. You are. That's true. You are perverting justice. You are trying to tip the balance of the scales in your favor and against someone else. Especially when they don't deserve it. So, what does then this tell us about God. God cares about justice. God cares about justice. And we have to be careful here because we live in a world that proclaims that they care about justice, don't they? If you spend any time trying to learn about the social justice movement, you will know that. But you will also find that their version of justice is anything but real justice. It is. It's about redistribution, not retribution. It's about equality, not equity. It's about reparation, not repentance. But God's justice is fair. God's justice is right. This is his world, and his definition of justice must be allowed to stand. And so we too should be passionate about justice. Don't swing to the other extreme and think that we are not about justice. We are. We are totally about justice. But we are about what? God's justice. We are about God's justice. Because God does care about justice. 
Last, verse 17, the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. If you put it positively, it's this. God cares about contentment. God cares about contentment. This kind of brings everything together from all the other nine commandments. And it really internalizes it. It makes it uh, true to the heart. That everything that you're trying to do is true in your heart. If you believe that God controls everything, then you will be content with what God has given you. You know, your neighbor may have a nicer car. They may have a nicer house. They may have nicer kids. Sorry, you know. It it happens, right? And I know you might feel bad about that sometimes, but it does. And, you know, hey, you're you're in good company in one sense because uh, even the best parents have rebellious children. God did. Isaiah 1-2, children have I reared, but they have rebelled against me. So even if that's the case, and you're tempted to be discontent in your heart, don't buy into the culture's lie. You don't have rights. You have gifts. You have gifts. Everything you have in life is a gift from God. And we need to be thankful for what God has given to us. And we also need to be thankful for what God has given to others. God cares about contentment. Now, that's just the Ten Commandments. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other commandments and instructions in the law that uncork for us the full character of God. But I'm hoping this kind of gives you a head start here. This gives you a helpful grid through which you can begin seeing the rest of the law because whether you realize it or not, the Ten Commandments here form the backbone for the rest of the law. The Ten Commandments are really the foundation on on, on which the rest of the law is derived. Every commandment in the law can actually be traced back to the Ten Commandments. And I kind of give you a, a couple of examples of that already. Every case law, every miscellaneous law, it all goes back to the Ten Commandments. Even strange laws like, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What do you do with that? That goes back to the Ten Commandments. It actually goes back to the Third Commandment. Each one serves as a practical manifestation of one of these Ten Commandments so that you will understand just a little bit better, a little bit more fully, that aspect of God's character. And so as you gather your courage and try to start doing your devotions in the law, remember this first key principle that the law is meant to point you to the person of God. So look for his character. Look for how it shines through. We have a second principle, though. And that that is this. The presence of sin. The presence of sin. This actually may be uh, one purpose of the law that you're more familiar with. In fact, we kind of sang about it. We, 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 it was kind of mentioned up here on stage already that we are in, inadequate and we're incapable of the law. That's what the law does. We get the law exposes our sin nature. I mean, just try, try telling, for those of you guys who are parents, try telling your kids to clean your room. Unless they're knee freaks, which uh, there are some who are like that, I guess. Um, you're going to see right away that a command like this doesn't really encourage them to clean their room, does it? What does it do? It discourages them usually, right? That's how law kind of works. People don't like obeying rules. But it's not just our personal experiences that prove that we cannot obey. The law itself actually shows us this. It shows us that this is the case in so many different places. Turn over to Exodus 32 for a moment. 
kind of want to give you some examples. Exodus 32 is, is no doubt a familiar story to many of you guys. This is the story of the golden calf. And the story is so familiar to us that we don't even often really pay attention to the details here, but this is a prime example here where the details are actually, uh, actually matter. They're significant. Now, we know that, that Israel disobeyed God here. We know that they made this golden calf. But what we often don't know is that in just a few short verses here, every one of the Ten Commandments, Israel broke. Every one of the Ten Commandments, Israel broke. Uh, don't forget that Exodus 32 is coming off the heels of the giving of the law. It started in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. It finished, finished in Exodus 31 with uh, laws about the Sabbath. And then right off the heels, this is the very first thing we hear about Israel doing. <laughs> very first thing. Moses hasn't even, like, technically come down from the mountain yet, okay? <laughs> and this is what Israel does. The law is very fresh on their minds. And what do they do? They literally disobey everything. Everything. Let me just kind of give you a few, exa- few examples. I can't go through all Ten Commandments, how they break them here, but let's just talk through a couple of them. Verse 1, notice what it says in Exodus 32. Uh, the very first thing out of Israel's mouth is, Up, make us gods. You guys see that there? Up, make us gods. And if you're reading in NASB, it might say, God, singular. But actually, the, the best translation here is what the ESV has, which is, God's plural. And that's important. Because what should that remind you of? The first commandment. This is a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods, plural, before me. Look at verse 2. We see Aaron respond by asking the people to take off the uh, the rings of gold. But if you were paying attention to the last several chapters of Exodus, you'll realize that the gold that Israel had Uh, had on them was reserved for something else. It was reserved for what? The tabernacle. The tabernacle. And so Israel is, is literally pilfering from God's sanctuary. That's what he's doing. That's what they're doing. This is a violation of the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. And when we reach verse 4, we see Aaron taking the gold and the other ornaments, and it says he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a golden calf. And I think this one's actually just so blatantly obvious. If we didn't catch it before, uh, the other commandments being broken up to this point, you will now. This is the violation of the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And so what is Exodus 32 trying to tell you? Israel can't do it. They can't do it. They can't do any of the law. They can't obey it. Here's another example. Turn over to Leviticus 10. Leviticus 10. We're going to look at verse 1 in just a moment. This is the story of Nadab and Abihu. Before I read that verse, listen to what God commanded the priest not to do in Exodus 30, verse 9. He said, You shall not offer unauthorized incense on the altar. That was in Exodus. Then in Leviticus, what do we find? Verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. 
which he had not commanded them. So now it's not just the moral commands of the law that Israel can't keep. It's even the laws of the sacrificial system. From the individual commands, even to the categories of commands, Israel just disobeys it all. And there are so many other examples we could talk about in the law where Israel's breaking commands already built into the law. Aaron and Miriam's opposition to Moses in in Numbers 12. The spies who came back from Canaan with a bad report in Numbers 13. The rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram in Numbers 16. How about the adultery and and idolatry uh, that took place at Baal Peor in Numbers 25? And let's not forget all of those times throughout the wilderness that Israel grumbled and complained, breaking the 10th commandment. The law was never meant to keep Israel from sinning. Don't think about it that way. It was meant to expose it. It was meant to expose it. It made it more visible, more obvious. And the New Testament confirms this. Galatians 3.19 tells us that the reason the law exists is because of our transgressions. The law exists to bring your sin out into the open so that you will see it for what it really is. Romans 7.5 says that our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Verses 7 through 11 go on to describe how uh, if, if Paul would not have known, uh, uh, would, have, would not have uh, been for the law, he would not have uh, uh, known sin. And so it exposed it, exposed his sin. And that's, that's part of what the law is designed to do. It's meant to expose sin. The law isn't supposed to make you feel good about yourself. It's supposed to make you feel bad about yourself. God has designed the law to bring you to that breaking point. It's meant to crush you. You should feel the weight of how unworthy and incapable you really are. If you read the law and you walk away feeling like you got this, or that if you just try hard enough, you can please God in some way, you're not using the law the way it was intended. You're not. I mean, isn't that what you have been studying not too long ago in Logos? 1 Timothy 1 verse 8. You should probably be familiar with this. Now we know the law is good if, if, One uses it lawfully. What do you mean by that, Paul? What do you mean lawfully? Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the what? The lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. If God's law is not grabbing your attention and pointing out the sin that's already inside of you, then you're using it wrong. You're not letting it do its job. It's meant to humiliate you. It's meant to make you feel uncomfortable, to feel unworthy, to feel incapable, to feel inadequate. And as frustrating as that sounds, as disappointing as that seems, that's exactly where God wants you. That's exactly where God wants you. 
If that's how you feel when you're done reading the law or trying to obey it, then you're in the right place. And you might be thinking to yourself, how is that good? How is that good a good place to be? I don't understand that. Well, that's because there's a third principle. There's a third principle, and this one is the most amazing of them all. The third principle the law points to is this. The path of salvation. The path of salvation. If all the law did was point out who God is and who you are, you would have nowhere else to turn. I mean, who among us can actually traverse that inseparable gap that the law has just created us, created between us, uh, the, the, really the, the, uh, our unholy presence of sin and the, the holy person of God? The law would be an absolute nightmare if that were the case, right? And it wouldn't make any sense for the psalmist to declare, oh, how I love your law. Really? Wow, that's amazing. But the law doesn't leave us there, does it? It doesn't leave us there. It gives us one more principle that we can hang our hats on. It shows us the path of salvation. Now to be sure, we need to be absolutely clear here, the law is not the path of salvation itself. Okay? Don't get me wrong. The law is not the path of salvation itself. Just like an exit sign on the freeway is not the exit ramp itself. Right? I don't want to catch any of you guys plowing through an exit sign thinking that that's an exit ramp. Right? No one would do that. And in the same way, we should be wary of ever using the law as the means of salvation rather than the gospel itself. But the law points. And one of the things that it points to is the path of salvation, the gospel. And I don't just mean implicitly by exposing our sin, although that's true, but it also does so explicitly in very clear and demonstrable ways. The gospel is actually all over the place in the law. It is. We just aren't as in tune to it as, we're probably, uh, as we probably should be. And one of the most common ways that the law points us to our salvation, to that hope of the gospel, is by highlighting the promise of a new creation. A new creation. The law points to a new creation. The law is filled with all kinds of creation terminology and language that's meant to help everyone see that God has a plan to make a new creation. And there's so much of this language all over the law, and I can't even begin to to tackle all of that for you this morning at all with our time left. So let me just give you a couple of examples, okay? You can look up these verses on your own sometime, but Exodus 21 verse 2, it tells us, or tells Israel to allow Hebrew slaves to serve for six years and then to release them on the seventh. Now notice the pattern. Work for six years, release on the seventh. What should that remind you of? Creation, right? This is modeled after creation when God made the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. God is showing with Israel's own work calendar that he still has a plan to bring the world back to paradise. The law is pointing you to salvation already. Exodus 26, 31. This talks about the tabernacle and how the veil is made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and the supports are made of acacia wood. Now, it's like, what does that mean? Like, how is that significant? What's going on there? Blue, purple, and scarlet are the colors of the sky. That they're the colors of the sky. And acacia wood 
comes from trees. So we have sky, and we have trees. What should that remind you of? Creation, right? Creation. This is telling you that the tabernacle is designed to be a mini-replica of the Garden of Eden. It's a mini-replica of the Garden of Eden. And you're like, really? Is that true? I don't know about that. That's kind of strange. Well, think about it this way. What is the tabernacle also called in the Bible? Very frequently. The house of God. This is where God lives. Where's the only other place in Scripture up to this point where God has lived anywhere? Other than like heaven. Where's he lived? In the Garden of Eden. You all are going through this right now in a sermon series in Genesis 3 where it says that God was what? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What is that talking about? That's talking about that God was regularly and habitually walking with Adam and Eve in a relationship with them in the garden of Eden. He had a relationship with them. This is where he lived. And the tabernacle is meant to imitate and replicate that this is supposed to look like the Garden of Eden. And what's the point of that? To say that this world is not the way it's always going to be. It is going to be different. We can get back to paradise. And Israel, Israel has the key and the answer to it. That's the point. So the law here, in these very specific ways, is pointing you to salvation. But how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we get back to paradise? None of these parts of the law actually, actually get us there when we try to obey them. They just tell us that salvation exists. That God has a plan for it, but we don't know how that plan is going to work. We don't know what's going to happen in that regard. So does the law ever point us to how as well? It does. It does. Part of it is through, you know this, the sacrificial system. But part of it as well is going to be through something else and something a little bit more clear, I would argue. The law not only points out a new creation, it also points to a beautiful Savior. It also points to a beautiful Savior. And I want to show you one example of this briefly. Head over to Exodus 34 as we kind of wind down here. This is very significant. Exodus 34. And we'll look at this in just a minute, but let me just kind of first give you a little bit of context. After Israel broke every one of those Ten Commandments in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6, by making this golden calf, Moses pleads with God to forgive Israel. And he says in Exodus 32, verse 31, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. What is Moses asking for there? He's asking to be their substitution, isn't he? He's asking to be their substitute, their scapegoat. And this is how God responds to Moses. God says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. What's God's response there? No. No. 
You can't, you can't do that, Moses. You're not worthy to be their substitute. How's that going to work? No, whoever sins, I'm going to punish. That's just the way, the way it's going to work. So then, if that's the case, God should turn right around and wipe out all of Israel right then and there, shouldn't he? But he doesn't, does he? What does God do? He forgives them. He continues to lead them. He continues to move forward. He does answer Moses' request to, to stay with Israel and to, and to be their God and to forgive them of their sins. But it's not based on Moses that he forgives them. So here's the question. What changed? What changed? How is this possible? How can God forgive their sins? Exodus 34 gives us the answer. Just before that famous moment when God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and then passes in front of him, there's something interesting that happens that we could very easily overlook. Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Wait, what? I thought the Lord was about to pass by in front of Moses. Yes. But it says right here that he came down and stood next to him. He did. So, how is God in two places at once here? What's going on? Do you see it? Do you see what's happening here? Who is the person who came down out of a cloud, no less, and stood next to Moses? Christ. This is Christ. This is a pre-incarnate moment where Jesus steps in and stands with Moses as a mediator between him and God. This is God saying in a very visual, demonstrable way, this, this is how I will forgive Israel of their sins. Moses, you can't do it, but my son can. My son can. And now can you see that the law doesn't just point us to the person of God. It doesn't just point us to the presence of sin, but it also points us to the path of salvation, yea, verily, the person of Christ. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what the New Testament tells us about the law. Listen to what Galatians 3.24 says. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. What does that mean, that the law was our tutor unto Christ? It means the law was designed to lead us to Christ. Just like a sign on the side of the road is leading you to the exit ramp, the, the law is meant to lead you to Christ. And that's exactly what we see there in Exodus 34, wasn't it? The law led you to Christ. It broke Israel of their self-righteousness. It showed them just how wicked they really were, how incapable they really were of obeying God's law. And then what did it do? It gave them the remedy of Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is the capstone of the law. That's the beauty of it. At the end of the day, what does the law do for you? It gives you Christ. It leads you to Him. The law was never meant to be an end to itself. It was always meant to point you to something else. It was meant to be a means to an end. And that end is Christ. 
Romans 10.4, for Christ is the what? The end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look, there's a reason why Romans 6.14 and Galatians 5.18 say that we're no longer under law. The law was always intended to move us to Christ. It's always been pointing us to Him. It's always been leading us to Him. Just like you were never intended to stay in school for the rest of your life. And everyone says, Amen, right? There's one day that you were uh, designed to graduate and to get a job. And in the same way, no one was ever intended to stay under the law forever. But we must move on to something better, which is Christ. And this changes everything for us. No longer is the law just a bunch of rules that we have to follow. No longer can be misconstrued as just the means of some kind of salvation for us. No, the law leads you to Christ. It leads you to the gospel. It points you to Him. It shows us that He's the only way we can be made right with God. The law can't save you. It can't. Good works can't help you. They don't. You need a substitute. You need a redeemer. You need someone who's going to be able to put his hand on you and at the same time put his hand on God and not die at the same time. Who can do that? A God-man. Jesus Christ. And the law is pointing you directly to him. This is the solution. This is the one who's going to take you back to creation, to the Garden of Eden, to paradise forevermore. That's your hope. And the law leads you there. Stop focusing on your own efforts. Stop looking to your own achievements. Stop trusting in your own strength. The more you try, the more you're just going to realize you can't do it. But there's someone who did. And he's everything the law has been pointing to all along. Trust in Christ. The end of the law. And now do you see, the law really isn't as bad or as boring as we originally think it is, is it? It's not as intimidating as it looks. It has a good purpose, and that purpose is to point. It points you to the person of God, his character, his attributes. It points you to the presence of sin, your depravity, your inability. And it points you to the path of salvation, your hope, and your Savior. And when you read the law through these lenses... I think you'll find just how profitable and useful and valuable the law can really be for your walk with Christ. Bow with me in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for giving us a law. It points out your standard, who you are, what you're about. It even points out our own sin and our own ugliness But it doesn't leave us there. By your grace, O God, it even points us to Christ. The hope of his righteousness and how we can be made right with him and live lives that are truly honoring to Christ through Christ, in Christ, by his power, through his spirit. And so I ask, Father, that you would fill each and every believer in this room with the hope of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would convict any hearts here who do not know Christ. Would they come to you, not on their own merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ alone, so that they would 
find the peace and joy and hope that is only found in him and experience everlasting joys forevermore with you. Father, bless this church. May this church be a a church that upholds the scripture, all of the scripture, even the law, because of how valuable it is in terms of our relationship with Christ himself. It is in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.